The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to July's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we discuss some of the latest products we've seen over the last few weeks. And we also discuss the age-old question, how can old films look good in high definition? So as always, I'm joined by our AV Forums podcast pundits. Uh, this month, we have Neil Davidson from Genesis Technologies. Hi, Neil. Hi, Phil. And uh, we also have AV Forums hardware reviewer, David McKenzie. Hi, David. Hey there. It's the Jockcast this month. Um, so we're going to quickly move on with some of the latest news that's uh, out and about there and what's been happening since we're last on air. And uh, I guess the big thing, Neil, was Cedia 2009. Uh, AV Forums were there. They were uh, exhibiting this year. Uh, but how did you find the show this year? I thought the show was actually quite interesting this year, Phil. Most people listening probably know that the attendance at the show was a bit down this year on previous years. And certainly the number of stands at the show uh, was significantly down on previous years. But the kind of feedback that I've been getting is that many people who actually attended found the show more interesting. There was more opportunity to talk to people. Uh, it was as if the fact that it was a bit more a bit more intimate um, made people relax a little bit more um, and have more conversation and, and maybe look at some things that they perhaps wouldn't normally look at in uh, one of the very large shows. So, disappointing on one hand that the show was much smaller, but on the other hand, quite encouraging that, that people found it positive and useful. That's something I'm going to pick up on because that was very noticeable this year. I was there last year when it was a, a lot bigger. And I think when you have a, a show that, that is bigger and has more things to go and look at, you tend to ignore the smaller stand areas. Um, and I think this year, because there wasn't any of these uh, massive stands um, from the usual suspects, it gave people, and and it wasn't as big a show. It gave people the the feeling that they didn't have to rush around and look at things. They they could actually take their time. Yep, absolutely. The the sort of uh, feedback that I got as well, which is true. There was no need to rush around, um, but I think that probably for a lot of people who came, they were able to get more out of the show simply because they were able to take more time looking at what was on the stands. And of course, uh, CDA 2009, uh, all the CDA expos are training events as well as the, the exhibition side of things. Uh, I understand you were running your home cinema design courses again this year. How well did they go down? Yeah, we did uh, the home cinema design specialist class again. Uh, we had 17 people through, um, which is, is quite a good number, I can tell you. It kept me extremely busy over the course of two full days. Um, I think everyone who was on the class found it enjoyable, if I can be vain enough to, to say so. Um, certainly the feedback has been very positive since then, and uh, we're looking forward to the next batch of guys um, taking the Home Cinema Design Specialist test. Uh, we're actually up to three, yes, three certified Home Cinema Design Specialists worldwide now. So uh, we've uh, we've massively increased numbers um, from this time last year when we only had one. So I guess we must be doing something right. And uh, just explain for uh, the forum members listening in um, what this training entails and what it actually gives the person at the end of it. Well, Home Cinema Design Specialist is a new 
certification from Cedia. And I guess for those who don't know Cedia, it's the, the Custom Electronics Designers and Installers Association. Um, basically, for people involved in the custom install, it's the Trade Association. Uh, and they have a number of different certifications for installers and designers and so on. So Home Cinema Design Specialist is now the highest level certification that you can get. Um, and really what the, the goal is for guys who have been certified in that is that they understand the, the, the many standards that are out there now um, for home cinema design, uh, how to apply them um, and how to create the very best home cinemas for people regardless of their budget. Um, the training itself is, is a mixture of, of theory um, and whilst we can't do real practical work, we, we do workshop exercises where the guys have to actually come up with designs. Um, and during the exam itself, they, they have to produce a very, very detailed design of a home cinema uh, against a spec which they haven't seen before they come into the exam. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very, very uh, interesting and useful to see what they come up with. Um, I can tell guys who are thinking about perhaps doing the exam that you really need to know what you're doing before you take it if you want to pass. Um, but those guys who have passed, we can be pretty certain that they can produce consistently high standard work for people um, and know why they're getting such consistently high standards, which I guess is the other important thing. So I guess, um, I mean, I haven't been on the training. I, I don't know that much about it, only what you've told me. Um, but I, I guess what these guys have to do when they're designing a home theatre room is take into account all the different um, problems that they will encounter in, in putting together uh, a system and being able to spec that system and spec the room layout, acoustics, that kind of thing. Is I'm on the right line? That's it, exactly. I mean... Um Interestingly enough, when we are at the very high-end level, we kind of get lucky <laughs> in that we don't generally have too many problems with the room to worry about because we get to build the room from scratch to exactly the way that we want to do it. Um, what we try and do in the, the exam is perhaps make it a little bit more uh, close to real life and give some constraints and so on. Um, because obviously in the, in the ideal situation, it's it's very, very easy to follow the standards now and make sure that you can get an exceptional result. Um, the real skill is knowing how to to, to kind of use the standards, um, but also how to account for difficulties in the room design and obviously how to make sure to get the best performance for the budget that is on offer as well. Well, it wasn't um, it wasn't all fun on the show floor filming for me. I also uh, did a bit of training when I was down there, and it was good to see uh, the THX course back in the UK again. In the past, people have had to fly out to the states to get THX certified. What kind of value do you think is in a course like the THX course, Neil? And, and um, there was a lot of people signed up for it. It was forty three on the course, so. Do you, do you think it's a, it's a good starting point for those professionals or enthusiasts who want to understand the the concepts? Well, first of all, I think it was an exceptional number of people that signed up for the course. Uh, and what that should certainly tell us is that, that professionals and enthusiasts uh, are absolutely keen to get more knowledge um, about the subject that we all find so interesting, I guess. For those who are listening to this podcast, they, they should probably be interested in the subject as well. Um, it's, it's changed days from a few years ago when we just had to try and come up with, with 
best practices and, and designs um, without any real research or anything like that to help us. Um, and certainly organizations uh, like THX and also with what we do with CEDIA and so on, um, the, the information there is actually very consistent over all these different training classes, which is fantastic. Um, but what you always find is that the, the trainer um, or the other people in the class or, or these other things have a different perspective. Um, they've come up against a situation perhaps that, that you've wondered how to fix. Um, and over the course of these training classes, uh, you always learn new information. So even for me, jaded, jaded me, who has been on so many training classes over the last few years and taken so many training classes, I still love to go on training classes. Um, I, I wasn't able to go on the THX class this year, as you know, Phil, but um, I would have loved to have been there. Um, and I know that there are hopes to bring THX uh, back for some more training classes in Europe this year. Um, and I will certainly do my very best to make sure that I get to see that one. And I'm sure a lot of the people listening would find it very, very interesting to do that as well. Now, the Level 1 training was very much a, an introduction to uh, the, the whole THX training thing. But saying that, um, uh, I, I certainly had this perception that I was going to know uh, roughly everything that we're going to talk about. But it was interesting that you said there that over the course of training, you actually learn new things. And uh, I think the trainer, uh, John Dahl, you know, the, the guy's been around for as long as the company's been around THX. So the most I got out of the course was the actual discussing real-world problems. It, it's great to talk about theory, but actually talking about the real-world issues um, was certainly more beneficial and, and allowed you to put the, the theory that you were learning to some kind of practical use. Um, so if anybody's thinking about that, then THX.com, you get more information over there um, about that training course. But certainly worthwhile, aren't they, Neil? I absolutely think they're worthwhile um, and I would really encourage anyone who is interested um, to, to look at training courses like THX um, and some of the other options that are around out there uh, for training um, professionally and also from a, from a hobby perspective, uh, they're great fun. Well, let's move things on to some of the products that were on the show floor. Um, not a great deal of new things, but then, you know, the show is being held in June. It's the quietest part of the year when it comes to manufacturers releasing new kit. But there was a couple of things. Uh, first of all, Neil, the 21.9 TV. Did you get a chance to have a look at that? And what did you think? I, I did get a little chance to look at that. I'll confess I was actually more engrossed in the VX series, um, but I was also uh, had a good look at the 21 to 9 uh, LCD. Um, much as I hate the name 21 to 9, it appears that that's going to stick. Um, I think it's a fantastic device. Um, I'm not so sure about the picture quality, uh, but the overall concept of it and everything is really, really fantastic. Um, and I, for one, hope that we see other companies um, taken up where Philips have left off. It seems as though uh, uh, they've they've come up with something new in the marketplace. There seems to be a lot of discussion about it on the forums. Uh, and it's a high-value LCD that people want to buy, so fantastic. And uh, let's go, David. David, what's your thoughts on, on the whole concept of uh, CinemaScope TVs? Um, well, I think anything that lets you see the, the film in the original aspect ratio is a great idea, but um, maybe I'm thinking too thriftily. The price, isn't isn't it about uh, £4,500? Uh, yep. Yep. Neil, you can tell us better than I can. What kind of like anamorphic setup could you get for that, that amount of money? 
um, you would be able to just about get into anamorphic projection for that type of money. Yeah, really. Neil, I'm just going to ask Neil, uh, you another question, Neil. I mean, what was uh, the contrast performance like? Well, I mean, the, the, the TVs are, are okay. Um, I guess people won't hate me for saying that Philips are not renowned for having the very best picture quality out of all the models out there. Um, they have some other interesting features. Um, and I think that this 21 to 9 TV is, it reminded me very much of a Philips LCD. Yeah. So well, the, the, the performance was, was as per a normal LCD display from that particular company. The other problem we're going to have now, though, is I mean, people are going to start complaining about um, uh, watching 185 to 1 and 4x3 movies on it, right? Well, you get some black bars and stuff like that. There's, there's no escaping that. How do they, uh, how do they handle um, 4x3 on that display? I mean, like I was thinking, there's enough, there's enough um, width to like, display the picture twice, surely. The, there are a number of different processing options. I don't know if it allows you to do like uh, side by side, which would be cool. I agree. It allows you to do like panoramic, non-linear stretch modes and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, stretch the sides. Yep, um, and also of course you can watch it uh, in the center of the screen, as per normal with uh, the black bars on either side. Mm-hmm. This is um, what causes a lot of confusion for people, even just talking about anamorphic projection. Never mind anamorphic TV, uh, cinemascope TVs. But um, the, the, I think the one downfall with this is is the panel resolution and. Um, off the top of my head, I don't have the specs with me, but I think it's 2,800 pixels wide. So it's going to have to do some significant scaling to get the 1920-1080 image on there. So is it a bit of a compromise doing it that way? Would we not be better trying to get the uh, Blu-ray producers to maybe uh, offer a, a, an anamorphic squeeze version? Uh, well, we had the, there, there's nothing in the, the BDMV spec for that. So um, you would probably have a similar situation to what you had with Laserdisc, where they had they came up with the idea of those. Um, I think there were a few titles in Japan, weren't there? That were there were um, anamorphic. They called them Squeeze LD. Yeah, you would really have that kind of mess again. You know, there's no provision for it in the spec, so you you would really believe in people. You know, the majority of people who want to watch this stuff letterboxed out in the cold. So well, again, for one of the things with BD is that we know that that firmware upgrades and so on can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I wouldn't actually. I, I personally wouldn't rule out altogether the likelihood of seeing anamorphic encoded Blu-ray discs. Um, I think that we can all agree that, from a picture performance perspective, it would certainly be the best possible solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it remains to be seen whether it technically can be achieved, but from a picture solution, uh, that would be the best option. There's no denying that it is an experience to see uh, a movie like that on, on a cinemascope screen whether that be anamorphic projection or um, on a TV like that and I've got to say that the the impact of the screen when I saw it I thought it was it, it looked really really nice the picture quality wasn't great there was a lot of jaggies going on and so on but you got to remember it's a show floor it wasn't set up uh, probably to it, its optimum performance but I guess the, the whole idea of cinemascope is now catching on guys yeah I think that cinemascope really is catching on it's interesting that there have been some developments as well, um, such as the 21 to 9 display. We've seen the, the, the price of anamorphic lenses come down as well, um, that now give more and more people the option of at least getting into anamorphic. Um, and certainly on projection, I can't remember, Phil, the last projector you reviewed that didn't have at least some form of anamorphic scaling built into it. 
Yeah, that was uh, Optoma. They've uh, introduced this system where the projector will, when it's hooked up to one of their anamorphic systems, automatically detects when it has a 235 image being projected and will apply the, the scaling, the uh, stretch mode, and bring the anamorphic lens into place. So, you know, you're talking about a, a consumer-level projector with that capability, so it seems to be really catching on there. Absolutely. Um, so let's move things on. Um, there wasn't much else on the show floor. 3D was there. Optoma was showing 3D, but um, I'm very much still in the it's a gimmick and it's not going to last any more than five years camp because I've I've seen plenty of demonstrations and I've yet to see one that really sort of blows my socks off. I don't know about you guys. Have you seen anything that, that's made you think twice about the technology? Mm, I've seen one that made my eyes hurt. Um, you were there as well. That was the Panasonic one. And I, I don't know the whole idea. I, I guess I would change my opinion of this after seeing a really, you know, really well done 3D film. But for me, the point of, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just used to the flat image. And the whole point is that the director or the, the director, director of photography is going to guide your eyes around the frame with deep focus and, you know, just cinematic techniques like that, which 3D seems to interfere with more than anything else. Yeah. I think the thing for me is that everything is sharp um, and it looks fake. Certainly on the demonstrations I've seen, I've seen Sky's demonstration, I've seen uh, Panasonic's, uh, LG's, every one of them. It seems to be that um, even the background is super sharp and the foreground is super sharp. Now, the human eye Mm -hmm. doesn't work like that. If you look at something, then everything around it is uh, slightly out of focus or you have a barrel focus effect, which Mm -hmm. a film camera can do very well. Um, Neil, do you think that that this is maybe one of the things that that they need to get right to try and add a little bit of off focus in there to um, give it a bit more realistic look? Well, there's there's no doubt so far that uh, they're still learning the techniques of how to do 3D properly. Um, there have been some some very interesting experiments, and people are getting more to grips with it. Um, I think the animation guys are are doing a lot better with it at this minute in time than the the live action guys. There's no doubt about that. That's probably true for many, many reasons, not least the fact it's simply a lot easier to make uh, an animation for 3D than it is to record live action for 3D. Um, I have to say I'm in a slightly different position to you two guys. Uh, I think that 3D does have a lot to offer, um, although we are clearly still learning a lot about the technique. One of the big challenges, of course, is is the glasses and how to get the glasses working properly. Um, I, myself, wear glasses the whole time. So for me, one of the biggest challenges is to find a set of of shutter glasses or polarized glasses that can work with my normal glasses, for example, um, without leaving me with the headache. Um, Do you you think that any any kind of 3D system that requires the user to wear glasses has any chance at all? Yes, because they will all continue to require uh, glasses for the foreseeable future. You don't think that kills it outright, though? You don't think that's just too much of an inconvenience? No, for me, that doesn't kill it outright. Um, We've seen already that people are quite happy to wear the glasses. I I don't know if you're aware, but also um, they're already starting to offer, let's say, designer glasses, in inverted commas, Ah. um, for people to buy their own 3D glasses. so I think that that is, is just something that you're going to see coming more and more. I think the other thing as well is that we are all used now to the techniques of 100 years of filmmaking. 
Um, and this is a completely new technique that we have now. It's not some some crappy, you know, red and green nonsense like we've seen in the past. It really can be absolutely spectacular uh, when you see it done properly. Now, I've had the benefit of seeing the technology for used for things other than movies. So let's say things like uh, CAD drawings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's absolutely spectacular for applications like that and but when I see things like that it just makes me believe we just still need to find the, the, the best techniques for filming 3D movies Okay well I'm going to offer a different viewpoint I get I get what you're saying Neil and uh, you know I would like nothing more than a new technology that actually works but I've got a, a good friend who's a, a general manager for a, a chain of cinemas and they're all installing digital projection and 3D projection and so on and asked them about the box office takings because the box office takings for 3D films are actually up on uh, a 2D release. That has been the whole driver. But you've got to, and then he pointed this out, you've got to remember that they actually charge more for you to go and see a 3D film. So using that argument, I don't think works. Um, and I see it as we've now got high definition, we've now reached a certain point uh, with consumer electronics as well as the cinema where they need another gimmick. They need something else to push it on. And from everything I've seen, I haven't seen anything yet. Although, you know, James Cameron might, might blow us out of the park with Avatar. Well, I didn't say his name, but, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> that's what we're all waiting for. Yeah. He might blow us out of the park. He might show us how it's supposed to be done, and it might look fabulous. I, I won't discount that. However, from what I've seen so far, I just see it as a money-making exercise for the studios. I haven't heard a single argument from the studios that um, makes me believe any different either. There was an article from, um, uh, uh, it was uh, something Jeffrey Katzenberg, the head of um, DreamWorks, said. Uh, and supposedly his his big love for the technology was the fact that it's harder to camcord and pirate a 3D movie than it is to, to do it with a flat one. <laughs> yeah. And if, you know, if that's the, the kind of considerations, then, you know. Any, any comeback on that one, Neil? No. I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think to my point that uh, I think it's interesting technology and I think that we can see some very, very good uh, uses of it um, from the point of view of, of movies for entertainment. I will also grant you at this minute in time there hasn't been too much out there that would would make you rush out and say that it had changed the game completely. Um Certainly, I don't think we'll see a 3D movie vying for the Oscars anytime soon either. Yeah. So, I mean, we're all technology geeks. We all like to see the latest thing. We, I guess all of us would like to see um, something that does work. 3D, um, I'm going to say, I'm going to sit on the fence for the time being. I still think it's a bit of gimmick. David, you? Same same um, point of view here. I don't really have anything against 3D. I've just never seen anything that makes me like it. <laughs> Simple as that. And I guess, Neil, you're, you're looking at the bright future then. Yeah, I think that it has real potential. Not yet uh, there, but uh, I think that it shows real, real potential. And for me, I like it. Uh, as, a, as a technology, I like it. Okay, uh, well, let's quickly move on to some of the other things that have been happening um, whilst we've been off air. Blu-ray Live, yet to see a killer application for it, but there is going to be a disc released in August which allows internet shopping for all the products that you see in the movie. Like HD DVD you had in 2007? 
Yes, exactly the same thing, but it's BD Live. It's new. Uh, it's done um, with Java. So uh, I guess when you're talking about movies like James Bond, it's going to be ideal for the likes of Sony. I think it'll be ideal for any Sony movie. Have you seen the kind of product placement they get away with? <laughs> yeah. Um, Neil, where, where, where do you think this technology is going? Are we just being cynical, or, or do you think there's actually some use for BD Live? Uh, <laughs> You know, we're, we're we're talking about 3D earlier on, um, as if 3D is a is a doubtable technology. For me, BD Live is absolute pants. <laughs> it's just it's just the most rubbish thing that ever was. All you get is uh, slow loading menus with needless animations. Just get me to the movie. Just yeah. get me to the movie. Yeah, I, I think this is an area we're all going to agree on. Um, I have yet to see BD Live that I'm interested in. Um, there was one application which I think is coming from Sony, funnily enough, um, which is IMDB. Why you watch a movie? Well, I'm sorry, but I want to watch a movie. I don't want to uh, know that that scene was filmed 14 times and the lights used and the camera used and so on. David, uh, uh, are you interested in that? That is the one that comes closest to beginning to pique my interest. But I mean, I think all three of us are watching movies in a projector, right? So we don't want to see any play icons or pause icons or on-screen menus or BD Live or anything like that. We just want to get lost in the film. If people are watching a TV set and maybe it's a movie they've they've seen a couple of times before and, you know, the um, the, the, the original thrill is gone, is that too downbeat? Um, you know, me, 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 I, it, it's kind of cool. I mean, I guess after I've seen a movie and I really liked it, yeah, I'll check out IMDb and see what, the other people in the forums are saying about it or read some trivia about it i wouldn't necessarily want to do that during the film no maybe that's just because i watch movies in a projector and uh maybe maybe tv users would like it i don't know well here's uh, i i'll suggest one interesting potential use of that feature that immediately struck my mind uh, when i read about it uh, the subject we've just spoken about anamorphic a lot of people involved in custom will know that the Clydescape player, one of its biggest strengths over any other movie player, is that it has aspect ratio data for all of the scenes. Now, if we could use the, that new BD Live feature of looking up IMDB to also give us aspect ratio data, then uh, it would allow all of these uh, anamorphic systems to be completely automated. Um, that, for me, could be very, very interesting. But... I agree, I don't see any other use for it. Well, I certainly it, don't care to see uh, information about the number of extras or uh, anything else in a scene whilst I'm watching the movie. I think the you better go and patent that idea very quickly, Neil. That's a good idea. Well, <laughs> the potential applications for stuff like that are big, but I mean, we need to remember, what are we, what are we really talking about when we talk about BD Live? We need to remember BD Live is just their marketing name for um, the fact that the player can use uh, the, the players built in BD Java stuff and connect to the internet. You could, you know, there, there's lots of, um, I guess, useful applications for that. But I, I guess having that BD Live branding maybe confines them to, you know, the kind of experiences we've had so far. So yes, I, I guess that's all three of us saying that BD Live is yet to come up with a killer application that's going to make us use it. Um, I guess the three of us just want to watch the, the, the film and the quicker it starts, the better. Let's talk about the economy quickly before we wrap up on the news. Interesting story uh, this or this last week is that LCD production is actually struggling to meet demand at the moment, guys. Um, 
we all thought that the flat screen TVs, you know, with the the very small markups that they get, um, would struggle in the the current climate. But it seems to be that LG, Sharp, Sony are all upping their production lines and trying to produce more units per month um, than they were last year. Is that a good sign? Um, it's an interesting sign. Whether it's a good sign or not is uh, is open for debate. Um, on the one hand, it could indicate that consumer confidence is up and we're all spending more money, uh, which is fantastic. Um, on the other side, it could indicate that we're all depressed and staying in. Uh, but when we want to stay in, we at least want to watch a half-decent TV <laughs> and that people are replacing the, the, their first-generation flat panels with the new second-generation that's a bit bigger to, to make up for all of those nights out missed. Um, so I am ambivalent about that particular news at this minute in time. David? Do you think a digital switchover has anything to do with it? No. I, I, I mean, it surprises me because, like you said, there are a lot, with flat-panel TV, a lot of people have one. And, well, in fact, you say digital switchover in the US. I think that actually in the US, be, yeah, 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 could be a big impact um, for us over here, uh, where it was not orchestrated half as well. Yeah. So, um, talking about switchover, uh, Freeview HD looks like it's going to go live, um, Grampian area first of all. And uh, Neil, you'll be happy about this. Uh, from beginning of 2010, Edinburgh, Glasgow, the borders and northeast England are also going to get Freeview HD switched on. Is that good news? Yeah, um, but perhaps I should have an aerial installed in my home. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's better news, right? I mean, what, what, yeah, do, I th- do we know what they're doing with that? It was. It's going to be like 720p. Um, uh, how many channels is it? Four? Uh, four channels, 1080i. Oh, 1080i. Okay, good, good. Last I heard, they were going with 720p. I don't know if that was a rumor or have they changed their mind? Uh, I'm just going off what the Ofcom um, press release said off the top well, of my head. It's uh, it's nice to know that Ofcom have decided the HDTV isn't a fad now. Yeah, but we're still only getting four channels. Is 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 four channels enough? Four it's channels more is better than, than nothing. It's more than you get on Freesat right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's more than what you get on Freesat at the moment. Um, Virgin are adding three new HD channels. Sorry, four new HD channels to their service lineup. Um, Living HD, no thanks. Um, Why? National Geographic HD, FX HD, and I've got to say, FX's cool. content has gone up uh, in the last few months. A lot of good new series starting on there, so. That's good for people uh, who have the Virgin service. And the last one was MTV HD. Take it or leave it. So, and are, are those channels also on Sky HD? Uh, those are already on Sky HD, yeah. Okay, so, good. So, so we're, we don't have the situation where one provider has exclusive channels. No. Um, and another sports channel setting up on the Sky service, not sure if it's going to move over to Virgin, is ESPN HD. Uh, they took over from Satanta when Satanta uh, went bust earlier last month so that's good for uh, football fans 46 Barclays Premiership games and 60 Scottish SPL games as well going to be broadcast on ESPN HD and Sky HD Uh, they've done some kind of deal where they they split the games between them Uh, so that's new HD channels and finally uh, we're going to talk about audio from Pioneer because they no longer produce their uh, legendary plasma screens anymore and um, 
two subjects I want to cover with this story. Let's start with Kuro and the death of Kuro. Lots of reports out there, lots of forum posts as well, I've noticed in the last few weeks. Plasma's dead. Uh, which, mag- <laughs> <laughs> which magazine proclaiming the LCD of one and, and Plasma's no longer going to be uh, a viable product and, and is going to die. What do you think of that, Neil? Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Um, we, we've spoken about it many, many times on these podcasts over the last 12 or so months. Um, the, the two different technologies offer different things. For, for me, still, for outright picture, plasma is better. Um, you only need to look at the volume of plasma TV that the likes of Panasonic and LG um, and the quality of those uh, TVs um, to see that plasma is far, far, far from dead especially for people who are looking for, for the best picture quality options. I was originally going to say they're defined dead. Do the, the, Neil's just you know given his information, the kind of volumes are shifting, which uh, doesn't surprise me really. Um, I, I, I don't understand how they could possibly be that short-sighted, to be honest. Yeah, um, it seems to be a, an odd one, um, uh, announcing the death of plasma. We've had this for years, though, haven't we? Um, oh, LCD's got a better plasma next year. and, and You know, I, th- I think the death of plasma has been announced each time that LCD has gotten a little bit better, and it has got better. But, you know, yeah, I, th- I think you need to remember how crap it used to be. Yeah, and I think and I think now that you know they can produce watchable pictures. Every, every time there's been some kind of improvement, you know, there's there's been all these cries of oh, this is going to kill plasma, and uh, you know you only have to to look back to the past to see that that hasn't happened yet. And uh, while we're on the subject OLED, um, we're now towards getting towards the middle of the year, um, yet to see any announcements from anybody about OLED. Neil, do you think it's Something that we might see in five to ten years, or do you think it's never going to happen now? Well, OLED. Um, I I can remember working um, before I was in this industry um, on tiny little displays uh, that they were looking to use OLEDs in, and even back then the problem was still the blue LED uh, lifetime. That's still the problem. Um, <sighs> The, the picture quality that you can get from OLED is just absolutely exceptional. So, I absolutely r- hope that they can uh, that they can bring more of these to market. Um, I think they'll always remain fairly expensive, um, and and that's a problem. Um, if you're going to invest in in factories and so on to to churn out. The types of volumes that we're, they're able to do with LCD and, and with plasma, you need to be able to hit certain price points, otherwise the factories just don't become viable. Um, without hitting those types of volumes, I think OLED may run the risk of remaining a kind of a, a, a very niche technology on relatively small displays at the very, very high end, which would be a shame. Um, the, the quality that it offers is just absolutely superb. So let's hope they find a way of extending the lifetime of that blue OLED um, and making the displays themselves a bit less expensive. Okay, so let's wrap up uh, the news with the Pioneer launch last uh, Tuesday at the time of recording. Um, two new uh, lines from Pioneer. Obviously, there's no more TVs. So very much pushing the receivers, uh, LX72, LX82, third-generation digital amplifiers, um, interesting technology on there, Neil, is the multi-channel PQLS, um, which is said to uh, help with the jitter issues over HDMI. 
Um, you interested in that kind of technology? Well, yes and no. Um, there's no doubt that you get huge amounts of, of jitter over HDMI. Um, the, the problem with jitter is you always have the argument about how audible is jitter. Um, and I don't want to sound insulting or anything like that here. Um, I'm not sure that uh, jitter is going to be the most audible uh, degradation in the sound quality of most systems where these receivers are going to go. Um, I mean, you're not going to be talking the most high-resolution speakers um, or source components. Um, so, so whilst there's undeniably going to be some benefits, whether it's going to be life-changing benefits for people who are listening, um, you know, is it, is it audio nirvana? Probably not, to be honest with you. But at the same time, it's always, always good to see developments like this that take away one more problem from a technology. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. There is some need for it. Um, however, in the demonstration that we had, um, I struggled. I really did struggle to hear any significant difference, although you've got to take into account that it was a, a press event and um, it was set up in a studio, although they did a very good job in setting up the, the, the audio systems. Um, I didn't hear a great deal. So it'll be interesting uh, to get that technology at home and, and actually have a bit of a play about it with it and see if there is any real uh, audible uh, benefits to that. Um, and one final thing, new speaker ranges from Pioneer, Neil. Um, a lot of people out there will be thinking Pioneer speakers. Uh, but Well, of, of, of course, people probably don't realise the history that um, the, <laughs> the, the Pioneer group have in speaker technology. It's the first um, thing they did, isn't it? Yeah, probably the, yeah. it was the, the very first thing they launched. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they do make some pretty good value for money speakers. Um, sometimes the design is perhaps not to everyone's taste in this country, but yeah, they're a, they're a pretty good value brand, to be honest with you. Um, certainly compared to some of the more uh, established uh, sort of hi-fi type speakers that are out there. Um, they could certainly challenge them, so uh, people people might want to start seeking them out for a serious uh, demonstration. Um, certainly, pioneer speakers are, are are not the the slightly snigger that you might have expected um, from that brand. They're a very very serious speaker of good quality. 1937 was the first Pioneer product, and it was a loudspeaker. So, um, interesting uh, speakers being launched there. They do have the EX system, which is around about £20,000 all in, but they're releasing new uh, Series 8 and Series 7 speakers, which are going to be a lot more cost-effective. Um, Neil, do you think there's a bit of a snobbery when it comes to uh, speakers, and, and people think Japanese speakers, oh, no, no thanks, I'm going to go British? Oh, well, absolutely, but, but perhaps people don't realise that the Japanese market is one of the, the strongest markets in the whole world for very high-end hi-fi. Um, if there's one thing that the Japanese know, it's, uh, it's how to make a very expensive, high-quality speaker. I can assure you of that. Yep, and uh, we got to hear both the EX system and the Series 8. I've got to say, it sounded rather nice in the room that it was being used in, so it'll be interesting uh, to see that in more detail. But we're going to wrap up this section of the podcast... And we'll be back very quickly uh, where we talk about what the director intended. Contact the AV Forums podcast. Email podcast at avforums.com. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums podcast.
So we're just going to wrap up uh, this month's podcast uh, because we've seen a couple of forum posts recently and an article in The Guardian uh, or The Guardian blog um, which kind of got our backs up a little bit and uh, uh, we we feel the need to vent. Uh, so we've seen a, a few things which we think is um, putting a lot of misinformation out there which we would like to take the opportunity to maybe correct a little bit and uh, and add in our own thoughts. Now, as a director intended, it's um, or certainly as the content is intended to be seen, is one of the strong points of AV forums. It's something that we like to get across to people that if you really want the best picture quality and sound quality then you should be aiming towards standards and and getting to see things as they should be now there's lots of myths around uh, what's intended and lots of arguments no doubt um, but one of the things that seems to confuse people is high definition and films in high definition it seems to be this feeling that if a film is older than 10 years old how could it possibly <laughs> be in high definition if it was not filmed on high definition cameras so guys uh, who wants to take this up first of course they are um the the standard for shooting film has always been or for the most part has always been 35 millimeter um and done correctly if i even done incorrectly that will resolve probably a good deal more information than any modern high definition tv camera would so yeah it's a case of um the original source material is absolutely in high definition and you can easily make a high definition transfer of an old film. Obviously, we're talking about 35 mil, um, 16 mil as well. Uh, I believe that has a higher resolution, David. There's a lot of arguments and debates about that, but um, certainly um, from what I've heard from you know industry professionals, if 16 millimeter Super 16 is done correctly, then yep, you can you can get a huge amount of resolvable information out of that. So even even uh, I guess the kind of things that would use sixteen millimeter stock would be uh, uh, American TV dramas. I guess maybe in the past some some older British ones. Uh, I know BBC stopped using it lately because it, uh, it, the compression on their HD TV service is too much for the grain. Um, but yeah, even even that kind of thing when it's done correctly, there'll be a huge amount of um, uh, resolution you can pull out of that with a high quality film transfer. So uh, Neil, this confuses people all the time but basically anything that was filmed um 35 mil from however long ago as long as the the source print is all in one piece uh they should be seeing uh in high definition what was originally filmed uh, it certainly has the capability to transfer um all the information that you would need to really notice the the, the massive difference in detail between a standard definition and a high definition version of the transfer. There's no doubt about that. Keep in mind also when we talk about standard definition, we're talking about consumer grade standard definition, which is still some bit lower. So yeah, there's, there's the, the two are worlds apart. Okay, so the, the reason we're talking about this is this article that was written by Peter Bradshaw. Um, Peter, take a bow. It's one of the funniest things I've read in a long time. Um, <laughs> So basically, uh, David, give us a gist of what, what Peter was saying. Um, a lot of his article seems to be um, the fact that he doesn't like Sky, uh, and that's understandable, I guess. That's completely okay. But um, it has an undercurrent. <clears throat> the whole article has an undercurrent to it, which basically suggests, I'll, I'll quote here, but high definition, I, I'm not going to add any tone to the voice. I don't want to skew things. But high definition, I don't think Humphrey Bogart would have considered himself deserving of high definition. On the contrary, like all movie idols of the time, he would have appreciated a cinematographer who lit his face gently and respectfully without making him look his age. 
any lighting cameraman who approximated a high definition effect would have been thrown off the set. And this is I, th- what I take from this is um, the, the the absolute confusion. People seem to think, even journalists seem to think that the whole point of HDTV is to have this screaming bright in your face, sharpened up picture, which do you think probably comes from people seeing uncalibrated displays? I think there's a good chance of that. I mean, Neil's the guy that, that, to answer that kind of question, but I think um, what you're getting at is perfectly valid. I think that there is this um, underlying current of thought that, that um, and we see it all the time, LCD is sharper than plasma. Rubbish. <laughs> Put some movement in there and poof, there's no sharpness left. This seems to be this myth that goes around uh, and it goes around and it goes around and it comes on the forums uh, quite a bit. Um, when you're talking about resolution, you're not necessarily talking about the sharpness of the image or a super sharp image. Neil, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, people mistake sharpness for edge enhancement, um, which is a shame. Um, we, we, we can certainly see that uh, we can get very sharp clean images uh, without having to have all of the artificial video processing and stuff going on. Uh, at the same time, it's highly unlikely that you're going to get the best possible picture performance from whacking up a digital projector and uh, firing it at your wall. Uh, As and the, the, the writer suggests, yeah. Sh- Shall yeah. I, I quote the ending here? Please. Um, <clears throat> okay, the, he's um, talking about Sir Anthony Hopkins who was in this, in this ad campaign. Sir Anthony witters on about Sunset Boulevard starring Gloria Swanson, no mention of Bogart, yet this film is very much not on the site's demonstration clips of how films look clearer on their new high-def technology. And this, I suspect, is because with old black-and-white movies of this era, there really is no appreciable difference. It's not like sports coverage. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this guy's brilliant. Can we sign him up for a podcast? (laughs) <laughs> so, so I'll, 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 sorry, I'll, I'll keep going with yeah, what we're yeah, going to get to. <clears throat> so take my advice: forget about high definition TV. If you want a fantastic and genuine, <laughs> if if you want a fantastic and genuinely high definition experience with old films, do what I did: get a digital projector, fix it to the wall. <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> Fix it to the wall and get a long extension lead which can be invisibly trailed around the room like a telephone cord and plugged into your laptop when needed on which you can play DVDs. These can be projected at gas-inducing size and pin-sharp clarity onto a blank wall which should be entirely denuded of pictures, posters, etc. It is brilliant, like having your own private screening theatre. And interestingly, I think it is the classic monochrome films which look most beautiful. Okay, um, let's get some seriousness. Let's look at some of these things that that he is raising. Um, Neil, he seems to be suggesting that we should just stick to DVD because these older films will not look any good in high definition on Sky's HD service. Um, What would your answer to that be? Uh, Please just simply watch a film on the Sky high definition service that you may not have previously seen. Um, in high definition and you will see clear and ample evidence uh, that they are improved um, by seeing uh, at the higher resolution. And and let's stress here, we're talking about resolution. We're not talking about adding in dynamic noise reduction and 
um, adding sharpness and all the rest that we're talking about watching um, material in high definition on on a correctly uh, set up display you you're gonna see that as it was probably better than it was in in the cinemas of old david aren't we but but well this is the thing people i think people need to remember that when they watch uh an old film or even a modern film any any film at all in standard definition or standard definition dvd they're not seeing the film it's that the high definition a high definition transfer of that film is going to be more accurate uh, in terms of resolution obviously than the standard def version would be it's not that it's not that Sky are coming along and using some sort of perverted high definition process to add things that weren't in the original. It's a truer representation of the original film, and that's that's the fundamental point that this um, Guardian blogger seems to have completely missed. Yes, we'll say his name again, Peter Bradshaw. Yeah, take a bow, please. And uh, Neil, I, I guess what what we're trying to say here, and this is something that we preach all the time, is that set your TV up right, get good source material. Um, and you are going to have an experience from it which um, certainly with classic films you're never likely to get again on a big screen. Absolutely, in a nutshell. Although I have to say, um, just to pick up on that, um, my local cinema has been rerunning um, classic movies um, with, with new transfers and stuff like that and it is still astonishing to see uh, the quality of some of those classic movies. Um, and I, for one, hope that they can come across in the HD transfers and we can all enjoy it. Well, you're a lucky bloke if you've got a cinema doing that near you. And and I would always say to people, if, if you get the chance to go and see these classics on the big screen, go and see them because they, they truly are an experience. There's, the there's nothing like it, is there? I mean, people, you, you hear people say on, uh, on, on forums and stuff that um, my... Um, They'd rather watch films in their in their home cinema than go to the real cinema, and you know, I mean, I, they must have pretty crappy local cinemas to be honest. Because I mean, I I really don't think you can be the experience, right? Yeah, uh, I guess the thing with with, with prints these days as well is they're so um, mass produced and produced to a cost these days that you're normally getting a fifth or sixth generation print by the time you see it in in cinemas these days. And of course, it's all automated. These films run three, four, five times a day. Um, that damages the prints. So if you're seeing a, a film three or four weeks after initial release, um, again, you're not seeing at the best quality. But if you get a chance to go and see one of these classics on 70mm or on 35mm, it really is an experience. And the only other way you're going to get that type of experience or even get close to that get close. Is, is high definition on a big screen. Absolutely. So okay. when from that for, with that said, going back to the the original article, the suggestion of hooking a laptop up to a projector and throwing it at a, a white wall uh, and playing a standard def DVD off it is um it it's it's not going to come close to the original experience. No, I, I guess uh, one of the things I think Peter Bradshaw has has definitely has an issue with is. Sky TV, there's no there's yeah. no doubt about that. The way he goes on about Sky and Rupert Murdoch and all the rest, of it, he has an underlying curtain that he doesn't like Sky TV to start with. Um, but there's nothing um, in Sky's high-definition service that, that shouldn't be there. They're not adding in anything that shouldn't be there. They're, they're broadcasting the films at 1080i, but they're broadcasting the films as they should um, be seen. And if, and if your TV is capable of producing an accurate-ish image then you're getting the full experience and uh, 
hooking up a projector to your laptop, what do you do for sound, uh, Mr. Bradshaw? Let's leave the issue of 50 hertz speed up for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Neil, let's leave the final word to you. If you happen to bump into Mr. Bradshaw, what kind of things are you going to point out to him? I, I'm just going to point out that he, uh, he in fact, could be uh, enjoying uh, superior detail uh, in his, uh, his movie viewing, um, not only from uh, using HD footage, um, but also from perhaps a, an investment in a half-decent screen, perhaps, um, and that perhaps he may find a, a calibration of his projector somewhat useful as well. Okay, so uh, in all seriousness, we'll, we'll we'll get a little bit serious now. We've had a, a bit of a laugh at Mr. Bradshaw. Um, I know that some of the film fans out there are going to pull us up on a couple of points now, so I just want to cover them briefly. Um, Neil, we are talking about source material um, that is of good quality. Um, uh, we have to take consideration that directors like Tim Burton, for example, like to have a bit of a more soft focus um, in their material, but that's as it's intended to be seen, isn't it? So you're still getting some resolution from that that won't be on the standard definition uh, version. Absolutely. You have to remember, though, that's optical soft focus, which is very different looking to low resolution. Exactly. That was, that's, that's my whole point here, is the, is the fact that the, the director will choose to do it in a certain way, and it may look initially um, like the image is soft and, and there's not detail in there, but there is a lot of detail still to be seen, isn't there, Neil? there's so much detail um, that that we could miss out on if we weren't careful um, I think all of us have been lucky enough to experience systems where we've been able to really see what is in in the content um, even more so for David uh, with his re-encoding work um, and cleaning up the footage as he does uh, you would simply not believe um, the the effect of seeing a pristine transfer um, standard def never mind high def um, and I think that's just something that the Sky HD service allows more and more people access to more and more of these classic HD movies, fantastic I think it's great Okay, there's lots of subjects that we could go into from here. We're going to save them for another podcast. Um, what we will do is, um, under this podcast, we will we'll give you a link um, to Mr. Bradshaw's blog. And uh, we think it's a, an interesting point to discuss. If you feel like discussing that on the forums, then please do. Sadly, that's all the time we have for July's Home Cinema Podcast. My thanks to uh, Neil Davidson. Thanks, Neil. No problem, Phil. See and, you next time. And thanks to David McKenzie. Thanks, David. No worries. And uh, we will be back next month for another home cinema podcast. In the meantime, make sure you check out avforums.tv. Uh, we have some new content up there. We have Cedia uh, Expo Roundup. We also have a very interesting video on HDMI 1.4, a subject we will cover next month. And uh, also, uh, we will have a video up there of Pioneer's new products and their product launch. So that's all we've got time for this month. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.